Hey, welcome to Genre Exposure, a film podcast. Join us as we explore the wide world of cinema, broaden our horizons one movie at a time. I'm one of your hosts, Dustin, and as usual, I am here with Jason. Hey, everyone. What's up, my dude? Uh, you know, not too much. Just hanging in there. About yourself? About the same. Nice. <laughs> to be honest. We are Sans Michael, so that yeah. does make me sad. It was nice having him last time, but... We loved having you back, man. We miss you. I know everyone was excited uh, to hear your input again. Mm-hmm. He'll be back again sometime, I'm sure. I'm sure he'll bring us another wonderful movie. I'm this sure movie he was will. Most excellent. Yes, it was. But today we are going to be finishing off our science fiction block. We have gone into the future and seen the post-apocalypse. Mm-hmm. We have gone into space and visited the moon. Mm-hmm. Now we enter the world of virtual reality. Oh. A great trifecta of sci-fi mm-hmm. topics and ideas. Sure. And we'll be doing that with Mamoru Oshii's Avalon from 2001, a Japanese-Polish production. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of unusual. First That's... interesting oddity about this film. Yeah. But before we delve deep into that, and I rant for like forever about how much I love Mamoru Oshii, mm-hmm. which you know is coming, Jason. I know, I'm sorry, I'm bracing myself. <laughs> um, we're gonna talk about what we've been watching. Um, I got a shout out, and also we need to talk about some just general news, which I know we don't do that often, but it, <laughs> it, it seems relevant to the show this time. Yes. Um, so let me do the shout out first because that's uh, let's let's hit some positivity. Let me let me find this real quick. Um, we got a random shout out from like a up and coming film podcast kind of thing that's just started rolling. Um, called Reviewed to Death. They do a cool thing where like every month they shout out some other film podcast they listen to. A most righteous thing to do. Yes. Um, very cool. We appreciate that. And I'm always about, you know, sharing the love, spreading the love. So mm-hmm. since they shouted us out, I thought on air I'd shout them out. So go check out Reviewed to Death. Pretty much the same premise as our show or a lot of the other prescribed film shows that you can find out there or I guess a lot of general film podcasts just kind of, you know, all do the same thing, going through movies and talking about them. I think it's great. I think it's great that there's lots of other podcasts that aren't, you know, confined. Not that there's anything wrong with confining yourself to a genre. <laughs> oh, no, that, no, That's no. cool, too. But I, I love the fact that, you know, there's just so much love for all types mm-hmm. of movies out there. And you can get different films, different opinions on the same film. Mm-hmm. It's awesome. So, yeah, go show them some love. Follow all their socials. Help, help boost, yeah. boost their numbers. Yeah. All that fun if, stuff. If nothing else, you know they have good taste. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> <laughs> or a tolerance for the two of us. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> okay, then. So let's go to some random news, which we don't do often. <laughs> I thought first we should talk about this, maybe because this is the right time, because Avalon was licensed and released in the U.S. by Miramax. Mm. Um, I don't think on the show we've ever addressed the whole WGA writer strike. No, we didn't. And I think maybe now is the time that we should maybe just pause and do it. I, it obviously, I think everyone's going to know where we stand on this, and we don't even need to say anything, but mm-hmm. it's still good to vocalize it, right? No, I so, agree. Uh, WGA, writer Strike, and then now they've been joined by Screen SAG, Act, SAG mm-hmm. um, Screen Actors Guild. Obviously, they're in the right. We support them 100%. Absolutely. You're insane if you don't. You're, the opposing side is like millionaires upon billionaires, yeah, most writers and actors <laughs> and technicians, I mean, they're all horribly underpaid for the work they have mm-hmm. to do. You know, it's you, you hear about the big stars with the exorbitant salaries, you know. Right, right. But it's the people that really make the movies are getting screwed over, especially with all the streaming <laughs> bullshit, you know. And I think, if anything, us doing this podcast and making me, like, constantly focus and think more about, like, what is this film and let me analyze it and why do I like it or not like it and yeah. stuff like that. Like, to me, the story is key. And mm-hmm. central to everything. So mm-hmm. if you don't have good writing... It starts with the screenplay. You've got right, nothing. Yeah. You, you've got nothing. 
And then I, you, I don't care what IP you have. <laughs> yeah. If you don't have a good screenplay to support it, you're fucked. And I mean, well, let's look at some recent uh, box office bombs, right? Indiana Jones. Yeah. No one, no one cares. <laughs> People are starting to not care. Yeah. The Flash, it bombed mm-hmm. big time. Oh, royally. I don't know. Maybe that's a trend that will continue. Maybe it's just those particular movies. I don't know. But mm-hmm. something's happening. Um, And then you listen to like some of the horror stories of like what they're planning where it's like, oh, we don't need writers. We can just have AI write it and then bring in some editors to like clean it up. Or uh, I was just reading today that like one of the things that kind of made SAG get in the mix was like some CEOs talking about like, oh, we want to hire someone, film them for a day and then like CG in a model of them as like a background character and not have to like bring them in anymore. Oh my God. <laughs> Which is fucking insane. I can't even stand most of the <laughs> uh, the green screen work and yeah, all the yeah. fake environments and stuff. Some are better than others. Oh, true, yeah. But, sure. um, and I'm sure this rant is in no way related to the movie we're watching today. <laughs> but it's just so annoying and jarring. And it's like, hire set dressers, hire set decorators, mm-hmm. you know, hire people who can make actual... I know with big grand vistas, you can't create all that in a studio or something, but go back and look at something like Lord of the Rings where they make, even the Phantom Menace, Mm -hmm. where they're making like half the set, you know, the important stuff where the actors can interact with. That part feels real in like a space that they're in. And it looks so much better. Go back and watch the Phantom Menace, compare that with Attack of the Clones. Tell me which one looks better. (laughs) Yes. Anyway. Wow. Jason complimented one of the prequels wow I don't yeah I mean they're not cool. great but uh, there's things to like about them especially after you know <clears throat> Rise of Skywalker <sighs> um, yeah so that's from us support WGA um, I don't think there's anything else that needs to be said about it really. I don't think so um, no I guess the last weird funny thing I read that just toss in here I think it was Bob Iger made dropped some quote about like oh they're kind of getting presumptuous about how much they think they deserve to be paid and it's like how much does that fucker dude, make dude you fucking get paid in a day what most of them make in a year yeah at best Fuck him. <laughs> also, your studio is bleeding money, so fuck you. And yeah. this is also something I've, I've said to you guys, but it's like, this is the perfect time because we're going to have a dry spell. Mm-hmm. Nothing's getting produced. And that should happen. That's another thing is people are like, well, if we let this go on, there won't be new movies and TV shows. Fine. And that, that's okay. You know what? It gives you a perfect <laughs> opportunity to go back and watch older stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, I often always complain to you guys that I already have more. I own more movies than I can probably finish watching in my lifetime. Yeah. Just because I, you know, I love them and I want to collect them, and right. may, hopefully, maybe I'll get to them. You won't. It'll be fine. <laughs> It'll be fine. We don't. We don't need new things. I mean, we. It's cool. It's nice. It's fun. It, well, we will get to it eventually. Mm-hmm. It'll come. But just go back and watch old stuff for a while. Uh, I think the bottom line, though, is that if you're a creative and you're doing a creative thing, and it hits hard to me, and I think to you too, Jason, and probably even Michael. I don't want to speak for him, but I think he would agree with this. Like, no, he don't give a shit. We all dabble in creative things in our own way, and even making the podcast is an act of creativity too. And it's like it is, <laughs> not the way we do it. Yeah, maybe <laughs> the good ones are. Um, you should be rewarded and compensated fairly for that work. I agree completely. Yeah. We don't pay ourselves because we chose to do that. But <laughs> well, um, wait, we could pay ourselves. That doesn't make sense. Oh, we got to make money first. <laughs> yeah. So support okay. them. Down with uh, the the big evil corporate. Yeah. People. Screw those people. Other piece of thing to talk about. Oh no. Michael unceremoniously dropped this on us today. Um, I don't even know how to start having this conversation with you. I'm fine. Okay, so uh, it got announced today, recording it live right now, this moment, (laughs) um, 
that they are making another entry in the Return of the Living Dead franchise. Well, he said it was a remake. Is it a remake or is it like a reboot cool or whatever? Based on what I read, it sounds like it's going to be kind of a reboot cool where it's going to acknowledge the other films, kind of tie them up and link them together, but mm-hmm. it's also kind of its own new thing. And it's par for the course for a modern horror update to a franchise. We're talking about Return of the Living Dead. Right. One of the all-time classic, not just zombie movies, but like mm-hmm. horror movies, in my opinion. I love that movie. Mm-hmm. It's one of the greats. We, mm-hmm. We've talked about it profusely on this show. All the sequels suck. Well, no, I will defend part three. Part I'll three like, is like pretty three. good. Yeah. Um, four and five. <sighs> like made for sci-fi channel? Yeah. I, w- I think it's the last one, Rave to the Grave. It's so dumb that it's kind of funny and entertaining. Well, but... that's a wasted title. That's a great yeah. title. <laughs> oh, man. Um, but they were what they were, right? It was sci-fi picture originals. They were bottom budget, barrel. Just They shot them at the same time. Like crapped them pumpkin out. pumpkin head sequels. Yeah. Ugh. Ugh. Um, and so that's where it was, and it faded into obscurity. And now it's coming back. All the franchises are coming back. They're getting their updates. And uh, the production company that has decided to bring this back and has managed to get the rights to it in their infinite wisdom have selected a director already. Mm-hmm. Who is that director? One that Pretend. is maybe well-known if you've been listening <laughs> intently throughout the year on this podcast. Uh, it happens to be Steve Walsh, the director of Muck and Kill Her Goats. Mm-hmm. Uh, who? <laughs> it's no secret I'm not a fan Jason, of. Jason, how do you feel about this revelation? The guy, he could be a perfectly nice guy. You and know? he probably is. And I, I hate to even like rant about this. And he but... could be a huge Return of the Living Dead fan. And he could have great plans. And he could he could knock it out of the park. He could do a good job on this. I hope he does. I really do. Because I would love to see a great Return of the Living Dead movie. And hey, I'll say this. If, it's, if we're wrong... We'll say it on air. Fucking A, we will. <laughs> I will. I will happily, happily talk but, about But my it. God, Jason, what, we're living in the worst timeline. Yeah, like, what the know, fuck's man. going on? I don't, I don't know. Why him of all directors, you know? <laughs> and it, it even links up because, right, we've got this writer strike situation, and it's like they're not one to pay them a fair price, and then mm-hmm. Return of the Dead's coming back, but it's being made by the Kill Her Goats guy. Mm-hmm. The fuck is going on? Do you think he'll make it part of the muckverse? I don't know. How many? Well, we should start a betting pool. How many porn stars do you think he's going to cast? <laughs> yeah, that's one of the few things to look forward to for sure. Uh, it is what it is. We'll, we'll maybe keep following this as it goes. Oh yeah, developing news. We yeah, will be we'll, on it. We'll talk about the trailer, I guess, when there's a trailer. And man, fucking <laughs> kill her goats. Goddamn. <sighs> so what have you been watching? Okay, I've got a fun one to talk about. Um. Nice. But I broke down and watched Brooklyn 45. Oh, okay. Which is directed by Ted um, Coegan. Sure. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing his name correctly, and I apologize if I'm not. Um, but he is a great director. Uh, you may know him for We Are Still Here. Mm, I love that movie to death. Mm-hmm. Um, that was really like, to me, there was a, the resurgence of Barbara Crampton kind of getting out there and like, oh, absolutely. bigger roles again. Yeah, yeah. Because love her to death. Great movie. Um, but Brooklyn 45, I didn't know much about it going in. And I think the less you know, the more you're going to enjoy it. Um, so I shan't say much. Okay. Uh, I know broadly about it and it's intrigued me, but yeah, haven't watched it. I'll say a couple of things real quick. And if you don't want to be, if you don't want to know anything about this movie, skip ahead a little bit, mm-hmm. dear listeners. Um, but it's a period piece, which I fucking love. We don't get enough of those, especially in horror. Mm -hmm. And it is pretty much just a bunch of adults, a bunch of actually really good actors, 
<laughs> in a room acting against each other. What and a novel concept. It is glorious. It is so good. Mm. It is so much fun. Uh, Larry Fassenden's in it. Oh. He's great. John Stalwart, great director himself. Uh, I recommend it highly. It's on Shutter. Check it out. Sold. Awesome. Cool. You got anything else or? No, that's all I'll do right now. Okay. Uh, there's a lot I could talk about. Mm-hmm. Well, don't of, forget you got to gush over. Uh, a lot I want to talk about. Um, so I'm just going to hit two kind of quickly. Uh, in the scheme of kind of trying to watch some stuff on Netflix, I finally checked out Army of the Dead. Oh, Zack God. Snyder's big uh, zombie movie return thing. Mm-hmm. And it was an interesting experience for me. I know this is kind of like out of being relevant now because it's we're already on to like what Rebel Moon's on the way for him. But uh, I've never been a huge fan of his Dawn of the Dead remake just because like I feel like it kind of like misses some of the points of the other one and it, it does to not a meaningful way. It but, does, but I think it's his best movie. Um, personally, so Army of the Dead like the cast is phenomenal, just like fucking amazing. Like every person's great, great acting, great performances. Really loved it. Um, love Batista as the lead because I mean he's had more serious roles but I haven't seen a lot of the films where he's been in those kind of like character arcs yeah, he's a legit good actor um, so I'm very used to like the MCU Batista of him kind of just being like a joke on the side mm-hmm. so to see him have like a, a serious role and actually bring some like emotion yeah he's good it was, it was cool man and he brought it and he really carried the film well um, and I dug the vibe and the tone of it at first that it was like there was this zombie outbreak and they just kind of isolated Las Vegas mm-hmm. as the resolution to that and there's kind of this big like military conflict to like seal the city and there were and Batista's character and several of the other main characters were like the heroes of that, that sort of like helped prevent the outbreak. And then in the wake of that, they just become an, it's like almost like a commentary on like veterans in America. Like they just become forgotten and, you know, unloved and not respected or heralded for right. their sacrifices. And uh, at the start of the film, we just see him like flipping burgers and like a roadside, mm-hmm. uh, a little like restaurant place. Um, so, you know, it's one part heist film because, of course, he gets roped into, a, you know, one big last hurrah. Uh, the America's decided they're going to do a very small micro nuke to wipe out all the zombies in Vegas. Micro nuke. Is that a thing? Sure. Why not? <laughs> sure. Just a little nuke. Just a little just radiation. A little, just a little bit. Won't matter. <laughs> um, and, but there's all this money that's just left in a vault there. And a uh, shady business guy played by Hiroyuki Sanada, who's killer in the role, even though it's very slight. Uh, he wants to, them to put together a crew, sneak in there, avoid the zombies, get the money out, make it back before the nuke drops. Mm-hmm. Nice, simple, tight little story. Sure. Got your ticking clock element. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, it's really good. W- when they get there, it starts to get very video gamey because, like, there's... Sex Snyder, that's why. <laughs> Sex Snyder. Um, which, you know, there's all these, like, uh, film directors that have, like, been involved in video games, right? Like, uh, Clive Barker's one I think of. He's done two or three different ones, mm-hmm. like uh, Clive Barker's Undying, and then I think Jericho... And I've heard that maybe John Carpenter's working on a video game because I know he is yeah, already he like super games. into that. Anyways, yeah. I think Zack Snyder needs to make a video game, dude. Like that's probably where he should just. I think he would shine. But at. but yeah, so they get there and it's like it's like if you played any zombie video game, there's always this idea of like the special infected where they've mutated further mm-hmm. and they're like somehow stronger or have special abilities or powers. Yeah. And, and that's totally going on here, and they do justify it. They do some neat like zombie lore. Because the, the patient zero of all of this was like a super soldier experiment by the government that went wrong and got loose, and that was how it all began. And so, like, the people that he specifically bites and, and like, directly bites, they get mutated into, like, a super soldier zombie. But if he just, like, scratches them, they just become a normal zombie, and then those beget normal zombies. Hmm. 
So I kind of liked it because you still had these slow, like shambling hordes. Yeah. But then in their midst, there would be crazy ones. Like <laughs> there's a great one that's like he can do fucking capoeira and is like dancing around like martial arts fighting one of them. Mm. Um, and then there's like a tiger that got turned into one from like a, a magician stage show. Mm-hmm. That's like a scout that goes around and okay, very very video gamey. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was like you're the, not selling me on this, man. <laughs> it, it was still fun as they kind of went in, and then, and then it started to lose me. Like, I, if you asked me like 20 minutes in, I would be like, you know what? This is like a five star movie. Maybe this is like maybe his best. That's why you can't you can't yeah. judge it before it's over. And then the more I went, I was like, oh, I gotta knock off a star for this. I gotta <laughs> knock off a star for this. And it was like, it, it's all your failings of a zombie movie of like people make like dumb decisions, which is fair. Like we gotta grant that some because you're never gonna be like perfect, right? Sure. But sometimes it's just too dumb. Yeah. Right? right it's just too dumb right. to be believable. And right. it, it pulls you out. And there's this whole subplot of, like, uh, Batista's daughter in the film, like, forces her way along to rescue this mother that went in on her own to try to get some money to es- to escape, like, the internment camps. Because um, that's another good bit of commentary at the start is they have, like, an internment camp around the city mm-hmm. of, like, mostly immigrants. And it's, like, this whole, like, political thing of, like, there's people in the government that are kind of using the zombie outbreak thing as an excuse to keep people locked away and out of the country. And I mean, I don't like politics in my horror films, dude. <laughs> uh. Well, don't worry. He drops all of that. Oh, okay. Oh, all right. It's just mindless action. But, uh, <laughs> but no, no, they do some neat stuff too, where it's like, um, one of the signs is like a drop in your, your body temperature. So they do these like thermometer checks and it felt very much like the whole, you know, COVID, COVID pandemic thing, thing too yeah. mixed in. Um, so cool ideas up at the front and, and then it becomes a huge action fest. Everybody makes stupid decisions. Most of them die mm. and, and they just really fumble the ending, man. Like, so, so your core is this whole thing of like the relationship with his daughter and her wanting to save this random chick and, and how that all plays out. And it's like at the end, like everyone just fucking dies and like one or two of them survive and walk away and there's no, there's no payoff. There's no real resolution. Yeah. Uh, there's like a little tender moment at the end between some of the characters, but Ah oh, no, it just felt sloppy mm. a little bit. So, okay. uh, good and bad. That's what All I'll right. say. If you, so if you like Zack like Snyder, it's like a two and a half star rating. Is that what you I think I gave it a three, three. A, a generous three. I think you would be lower for sure. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> um, other film is I finally got out to the theater to check out Spider Man Across the Spider Verse, follow up to arguably the best Spider Man film, mm-hmm. live action or animated. Um, I wasn't as hot on this one. I, I really liked it. It is good. It's w- well done. Everything that was great about the first one is present here. Mm-hmm. Um, but hey, this is maybe a theme of this episode, storytelling. I felt like they really fumbled the ball with the story because in the scope of this, it's a part one of a two-part thing. Mm-hmm. And so I, I hate that I've done all these soapboxes this time. I did, I did the, <laughs> the strike soapbox and then and the uh, Kill Her Goats guy. <laughs> I got to do another one, and it's about multi-part films. We need to fucking stop doing this, yeah, right? I agree. Mission Impossible, the new one, is like a multi-part thing. Yeah. Fast X is the last Fast and the Furious, but it's going to be, what, three parts, Oh, they're going to stretch and, that as yeah. far as they fucking can. And in the Spider-Verse, it's a part one of a part two. And dude, like, it just fucking stops. Yeah. Like, right in the middle of things. There's no, there's no resolution. Oh. There's no break. Like, literally the last thing that happens is there's kind of... It goes into that, like, downturn, like the all is lost moment where mm-hmm. everything's going wrong. Everybody's separated. Bad things are happening to everybody. It's that part where you know, then you get the rising action that. of them starting to build back together, and we get like the first hints of that starting, and then it just fucking ends. That's annoying. The villain is never addressed. He vanishes in like the middle of the film, and you just never see him again. You know, kind of what he's planning to do, mm-hmm. but he's just gone, gone completely. 
You, you need to have some resolution, even if it's even if you know yeah. it's a middle chapter. Let's let's look at Empire Strikes Back. That that was where I was going to go to say like, how do you do this correctly? Then can it be done correctly? Yes, it can. Yes, it can. Look at Empire. Yeah. And people, some people say that's a cliffhanger. No, it's no. not. That movie has a resolution. What started at the beginning of that film is wrapped up by the end. Yes. All that remains is that we know there is this ongoing struggle against the Empire, right. which was the and, same thing that was true in the first. And one. they plan on rescuing Han. That's. Mm-hmm. That's all we know. But look at look at how Star Wars ended with Vader still flying off there in space. Yeah, you know it's leaving that little tease mm-hmm. for oh there might be more. Yeah. They but stopped the Death Star. It's but... still a self contained story. Yeah. But this sounds like if it were <laughs> like if Empire were made today, it would probably end right when like Luke ignites his saber to face yeah. Vader. And that's what that's cut, what this cut felt the credits, like. Yeah, yeah. You know? That's exactly what this felt like. Um, Otherwise, I liked a lot of the... There were way more shout-outs to Spider-Man comics, which I loved. Mm. Lots of cool characters thrown in. Uh, they referenced the live-action films, which was cool. Loved some of the characters they pulled to be central. Uh, the internet's blown up about Spider-Punk. He's one of my favorite Spider-Man variants. Just awesome British anarchy punk rocker guy. Okay. Version of Spider-Man. Love him. Hope he's in the sequel more. Uh, they got in my favorite Spider-Man, Ben Riley, the Scarlet Spider. Mm. Uh, they butchered him and kind of turned him into a joke about 90s comics being dark and edgy. Hmm. Wasn't a fan of that, but I think Marvel Comics doesn't even like that character too much, so they were probably giddy and happy about that, I'm sure. Okay. Oh, there, man, I've just been ranty so much. <laughs> I feel terrible. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, yeah, it was, it was fun. Um, it literally feels like it's going to be like, this was a two and a half, it's going to be a five-hour movie that should have been a five-hour movie. And they they just told chose to slice it in half. Yeah, yeah, we need to stop that. I mean, I will give some allowance for other adaptations, like like Dune, for example, because mm-hmm. Dune takes a good six hours to tell the story mm-hmm. of at least. But you know, when we watched the first of this new set of Dune, like I felt like it had a stopping point that you know seemed natural. I agree too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Man, I'm so anxious for part two. I can't <laughs> wait. Oh, That'll be an episode whenever we. Oh yeah. yeah us going over that. So yeah, that, that's me. Okay. Some enjoyment, but with some disappointment. Speaking of, perhaps we should talk about our movie today. <laughs> what? So today we are talking about Avalon from 2001, a Japanese-Polish co-production directed by the Mamoru Oshii, one of my favorite directors of all time, and I've been secretly waiting and plotting for a way to bring him into the show. <laughs> and the time has arrived. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about him, because I know you want to. Yeah, let's, let's start there before we even get into the film. Um, so he is a Japanese filmmaker, television director, and writer. He's pretty famous for kind of having a general style to a lot of his works where there's a lot of like philosophy focus and uh, I guess like surrealistic elements involved in his works. Mm-hmm. Um, if you recognize the name at all, you'll probably recognize it for his works in anime. He's done some pretty high profile animation films, uh, including Beautiful Dreamer from 1984, Angel's Egg from 1985, uh, the Pet Labor films, especially the second one from 93. And probably the, the pinnacle of what he is known for, the Ghost in the Shell film from 1995, which is arguably one of the most influential anime films of all time. You see that crop up like The Matrix. Many American directors have cited that as a big influence. 
Um, can I make a confession right now? Yes. I'm really not a big fan of Ghost in the Shell. Yeah, no, you're talking about the anime, right? Not I'm, the I'm talking about the anime. Yeah, I am talking <laughs> about the anime. I, I don't know. It just didn't. Maybe I need to go back and rewatch it. Mm-hmm. But at the time, maybe because I was really into the ultra violent stuff at the time, I don't know. But it didn't. It didn't. Put a, <clears throat> put a pin in that because I want to talk a little bit more about his style in a minute, and I yeah, think okay. it might link into maybe your disappointments. Maybe because I've noticed it happens a lot with him. Uh, some other claims to him: he has the distinction of making the first OVA. We've talked oh, about those before. Original wow. video animation that was their direct-to-video animated feature kind of thing. It was Dallos in 1983. Dallos. Let's see that here. Yeah. A nice uh, moon-based science fiction fair. Nice. Oh, he worked on Gatchaman, too. Mm-hmm. Nice. Okay. Uh, he's also worked as a screenwriter for theatrical films. He's dabbled in manga, dabbled in novel writing. Just, a, just an all-around uh, storyteller to continue our theme for the show. Um... And then for his works, he's received a lot of nominations and awards. He got a Palm d'Or and a Golden Lion. Um, he's received praise from a lot of American directors, including James Cameron, Steven Spielberg, and the Wachowskis. Um, in his youth, he was always fascinated by film. His, his father was a huge cinephile and like kind of pushed him in that direction anyways, just from them going out together and enjoying trips to the theater and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, an early director he was really huge on was Chris Marker, especially his film Le Jeté, which you may be more familiar with from it being used as a kind of inspiration piece for, is it 12 Monkeys? Okay. Where they have the one scene in the airport, and then... I haven't seen 12 Monkeys either. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> oh. Buckle up, folks. This is going to be a long episode. Uh, he's a huge fan of European cinema. Some of his favorite directors he cited, Federico Fellini, Ingmar Bergman. We hear that name a lot. I know uh, those guys. Michelangelo Antonioni, Jean-Pierre Melville. Um, them, along with the other three that he really pushes a lot, are Jean-Luc Godard, Andre Tarkovsky, who I keep trying to push on Jason, and yet he remains uncultured. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Jersey Kawalowazarek. Probably butchered that name. I'm sorry. Yes, it's okay. Um... And so a little more about his youth, just because it bleeds into a lot of his uh, his works. He was uh, more onto like in high school and college. He was in a lot of these leftist organizations that grew up around like student activity groups. Um, there was this whole thing. Uh, I think they were called the the AMPO protests, where it was these student protests against Japanese military action. I think the big thing was they were trying to renew the U.S. Japan Security Treaty, mm. and there was a lot of student protests at the time about that and. Kind of the, the how much how militarized should Japan be and that kind of thing, right? Um, which there's a great film that kind of covers that whole time period. Uh, Nagas Nagashima Oshima, another acclaimed Japanese director. Uh, his film Night and Fog in Japan from 1960. Well, I've heard of that one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, but it was a really big defining event on him because he he was you know out there in the thick of it, getting like you know tear gassed and pushed out of oh, wow. protests and everything. And, nice. Um, it was a huge, huge, huge to do. Um, eventually he graduated from Tokyo Gakuge University in 1976 and began work at Tatsunoko Productions, which gets us to, as you mentioned, Jason, Gachaman. Yeah. Tatsunoko is known for a lot of early animes in the 70s that are very beloved. And, um, he had a lot of like, I guess not standout work there. He was more of, you know, you know, just getting his feet wet and things. Oh, and you may know Gachaman as a G-Force or Battle for the Planets. Yeah. If you're, if you're an American mm-hmm. uh, anime watcher that knows all the old yeah. adapted versions. Um, 
He spent a lot of time working on Time Bokon, which is another popular series. He was a storyboard artist for that. And then in 1980, he moved to Studio Piro under the supervision of his mentor, Hisayuki Toriyumi. I'm not going to take us too deep into anime, but uh, Studio Piro is a great one. They, they've done a lot of popular things. Um, but that was where he first found his success as a director working on Rusei Yatsura, which is just one of those all-time popular like romantic comedy animes. I'm sure Jason even... You've probably not seen it, but I'm sure you know the character Lum... The, like, space girl with green hair, and she's got the leopard print bikini. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the most iconic anime characters ever. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's him. Uh, huh? he, he, was, uh, not, he didn't create it, but he worked on the show. And that first film that he was really acclaimed for, Beautiful Dreamer, that was set in that anime. So Okay. Um, then, of course, from there, he moved on to Studio Dean, and that was where he made Dallos, the first OVA to ever exist. Uh, went on to do, in 1985, Angel's Egg, which is weirdly not released over here at all, but it's pretty iconic. Um, it's very abstract, very surreal, and deals with themes of, like, biblical symbolism. And it used character designs from Yoshitaka Amano, who's a famous character designer. Um, if you know Vampire Hunter D, he designed the character for that. Nice. Um, he does a lot of the, like, sp- character art designs for Final Fantasy. Maybe okay. not like how they look in the game, but like the character art you see. Right. Um, let's see what else. He's also worked a lot in collaboration with people tied to Studio uh, Ghibli. Not directly, but uh, I guess they're kind of like contemporaries of one another. Um, uh, particularly, he uh, collaborated a lot with Isao Takahata, who's kind of the other big idea man when it comes to Ghibli. Of course, you know, Miyazaki's the other one. Um, they at one time were working on a film together called Anchor, but it ended up getting canceled and got dropped. Um, however, Ghibli later helped Oshi whenever he moved on to working on some of his later works like Ghost in the Shell 2 Innocence in 2004. And they've kind of always had a sort of like rivalish but respectful relationship between uh, each other. Okay. Um, it was even a pull quote I grabbed because it's pretty interesting. Um, He's been, like, critical of the Ghibli films in the past, uh, but when he's asked about it, he says um, he's often skeptical but respectful of the views present in their films. Um, he's all, He says he's often felt critical of the work ethic of Studio Ghibli and Miyazaki's attitude toward the workers under him, but he says that he would feel strangely empty and it, life would probably be boring if both of them stopped making films. Mm. So some, some fun little ribbing between them. Sure. Um, in the 1980s, though, he was solicited by one of his friends, a writer named Kazunori Ito, to kind of start working and collaborating on a bunch of different projects together. And this led to the TV anime Pet Labor, great little like police comedy drama series where they jam in giant robots into the mix. Nice. So, giant robots make everything better. Of course, I know. Um... And this started this great like three-way collaboration between um, between Oshi Ito and then a composer that was in their mix and was also good friends of theirs, Kenji Kawai. Which if well, we'll get to it when we get to Avalon, but if you look down the credits on this, all three of them are involved in Avalon. Uh, during that time, he also delved into trying to work in live action, which was something, of course, he always wanted to get to because again, like film was his foundation for everything. Um. He directed several films in the late 80s, The Red Spectacles in 1987, Stray Dog, Kerberos, Panzerkopf in 91, and then in 92, he made a surrealist film about the art of filmmaking itself called Talking Head. Mm. 
that chases us up to 95 with Ghost in the Shell, which again, big hit. Um, it was actually the first anime release ever to hit the U.S. Billboard video charts. Oh, wow. That's something. That's a pretty big deal. Yeah, that's an accomplishment. Uh, since then, he's you know dabbled here and there and working on some anime, working on some features. Uh, 2004, he did a follow-up to Ghost in the Shell just called Innocence, but usually in the West, it's you know titled Ghost in the Shell 2 colon Innocence. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did a standalone feature called Skycrawlers. He's had some American collaborations. Um, he did a series of shorts for Adult Swim called Sandwell and Me in 2017. Those were interesting. Um, and he's had a manga collaboration with Satoshi Khan before his death. Um, they were working on a manga together where they were kind of both working on the plot and developing it out. But unfortunately, production on that got stalled. And then after uh, Satoshi Kon's death in 2010, that kind of put it into it. Mm. But there was a very nice U.S. release of like what they got through that you can pick up. And last little thing kind of just about his career I wanted to toss in is because this is a funny thing to me. Um, he does a lot of collaboration with Production IG. They're the studio that kind of has the overall license to Ghost in the Shell. Uh, the later, like, TV series anime that they've made, they produce those. And I think Oshi wasn't super involved. I think he maybe consulted or helped out a little bit. Um, but, of course, one production IG title is Blood the Last Vampire. Mm. Great little film. American remake, not so much. Yeah, no, I, um, like, I like the movie, the but original. When when the movie first came out and it was getting all this hype and acclaim, Oshi wrote a tie-in novel that was published and sold called Night of the Beasts. And surprisingly, this has a U.S. English translation, and of course I own it. And it is like the weirdest fucking novel. So, like, Jason, I know you get the premise of Blood the Last Vampire, right? You've got Saya, she looks yeah. like a schoolgirl, but she's a vampire, mm-hmm. and she hunts monsters. Yep. And boom, the anime is great. Boom, period, you got it. <laughs> so, so the novel is about this teen who's taking part in school riots, and it's very... Once you learn about his history and being involved in those riots, it's kind of almost like autobiographical a little bit. Mm. Um, but but our, our main character in this story, he accidentally bumps into Saya when he runs into a monster that tries to attack him when he's fleeing from one of these riots when it gets broken up. And so she kills the monster, saves him, and then he's kind of like, you know, whoa, who's this girl? Tries to track her down, and that leads him to this manor kind of up on the hill in the town where they live. And he finds this very creepy old rich guy. And so that all is maybe like the first, just not even shy of a quarter of the book. The whole rest of the book is the main character, our, our student uh, youth riot member person, and this old man, and they're sitting at a table and having a long back and forth conversation about the, uh, the idea that vampires could exist and the nature of reality and this huge, long, drawn out philosophical conversation that mm-hmm. goes in circles and doubles back on itself. And mm-hmm. I see Jason nodding because he's <laughs> noticing themes and concepts. And that's like 80% of the novel. And then at the very end, Saya shows up. Turns out the old guy's a vampire. She kills him. And then she just kind of is on to the next mission. <laughs> and this is just... Stop talking already! <laughs> and this is just that one kid's story about how he bumped into, you know, Saya. Yeah. Hilarious. Even more hilarious that we actually got it over here in English. So, I'm trying to keep this as brief as possible. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about Oshi's style. Which I think Jason has already pieced together from me describing a few of these things and... I can sense some recurring things. Certainly it was hammered into him when he watched Avalon, I bet. Mm-hmm. Um, but in an interview, he had stated that his approach to directing is in direct contrast to what he perceives to be the Hollywood formula to him. 
a Hollywood movie, the most important thing is the visuals. It has to look good, look slick, be very impressive. Then it's the story. It's got to get from A to B and tell something that feels like a satisfying conclusion. And then the characters come last. Sometimes they may not even be that developed. They're just in service to the story to have the cool visual moments. Okay. Um, so to him, he thinks like, you know, you really have to like explore a character within a story, kind of almost the reverse of that chained together okay. in a sense. Um, he said that his main motivation in making films is to create worlds different from our own to be explored. Um, so he kind of has a typical style that a lot of his films follow and people have broken this down. So your, your typical Oshi film, it'll open with an action sequence, a big, big action set piece moment to really draw you in. Sure. Often it might just throw you in without context and you mm-hmm. kind of got to you know, reach and grasp to piece everything together. And thereafter, the film usually you know, pumps the brakes and slows down to this very, very slow, very like methodic rhythm. And there might be little sequences of, or beats of action that kind of speed up a little bit. But it goes slower for a lot, of, a lot of the rest of the runtime, maybe even in contrast to how that opening sets you up. Mm. Uh, he also frequently likes to insert montage sequences in his movies. Typically, uh, he likes to have a two-minute-long montage scene of muted dialogue where all you've really got is kind of the atmosphere and then the music cast against that uh, to kind of build like a mood or a feeling for the film that's not really just like told to you, but you, you just have to feel it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, recurrent imagery he likes to use include reflections and mirrors, flocks of birds, and basset hounds, which are a breed of dog that he loves profusely, and he loves to throw those in as little cameos or side things in a lot of his works. I've got one of those in this movie. We've got one here. Uh, it's probably most prominently seen in Avalon, which, you know, of course, it's the main character's got one that she keeps. Mm-hmm. And then in Ghost in the Shell 2, Innocence... In that film, it mostly follows um, Major Kusanagi's like partner Bato, and he adopts a basset hound. When you kind of catch up with him in that film, okay. Uh, Oshi is especially noted for how he significantly strays from source material whenever he is adapting a property, uh, especially that's uh, Rusei Yatsura. That series is just your straight classic like anime romantic comedy. You've got a high school kid, uh, alien princess shows up who's ridiculously attractive and would probably normally never be into him, but she's obsessed with him. Mm-hmm. And then everything's crazy and chaotic around them. And will they or won't they get together? Mm-hmm. And, and then his film adaptations of it just go completely off into like other worlds and realities and surrealism, which is like the complete opposite of the like slapsticky comedy of the show. Yeah. Uh, and, and then ghost of the Sh- in the shell, the original manga of ghost in the shell is pretty much just a uh, typical like police procedural dramedy kind of thing of, you know, they're, they're cops in this cyberpunk future and they're trying to track down a criminal that's maybe not a real person and they, they go through the motions and the process of that. And then, and then he turned it into this more like darker, slow meditation on philosophy and what it means to be human or not. Uh, and he said that's just a thing that he prefers. Um, like he said, like when he adapted Ghost in the Shell, he enjoyed the manga, but he opted, opted to leave out a lot of the humor and sort of the like back and forth, like buddy cop banter that was present in the work. Uh, I pulled this quote, which was a bit of analysis on his work by Andres Bergen, who's a film critic. Uh, it appeared in the Japan's daily Yomiuri newspaper in 2004, and they stated, Oshi's work steers clear of such stereotypes in both image and sexual orientation. His movies are dark, thought-provoking, minimalist diatribes with an underlying complexity. 
At the same time, he pushes the perimeters of technology when it comes to the medium itself. Character design plays equitable importance. And then kind of the last, I guess, piece of the puzzle to an Oshi film, a lot of his work sometimes lean into his political views or his philosophies on life. Uh, and again, that cycles back to the uh, ANPO protests, the student protests, mm. all of that. Um, there's a pretty clear anti-war vibe to a lot of his films when anything about the military or conflict like that is involved. Um, which you get a lot of that in The Red Spectacles, the first live-action feature that he ever made. Okay. Uh, which a diehard lover of that film, too. Um, and he did worked on an animated feature called Jinro, the Wolf Brigade, which is sort of set in the same universe as the Red Spectacles. I think he was slated to direct it and then he passed it off to someone else, but he was in the mix on the story. But that's sort of about this metropolitan police force that's dealing with the emergence of this fascist government and a lot of conspiracy of like, who's on whose side and can we stop this or is it inevitable mm. sort of deal. So yeah, that's a, a decently broad breakdown of kind of his okay. his filmmaking philosophy. All right, some background for you. I believe that's enough to orientate us on all of that. So let us let us get to the film. Yes, let us speak about Avalon from two thousand one. And first of that, of course, we have to begin where we always begin. What genre is this film? Uh, funny enough, like IMDb. <laughs> I was hoping we were going to talk about this. Yeah, it has it as, let's see, what does it say here? It's action, drama, fantasy. Yeah, it doesn't even say anything about science fiction. Conveniently, there is no science fiction listed there, which alarmed me a little bit. But uh, <laughs> No, this is, I can assure you, this is science fiction. Absolutely, yes. And if you search other sources, like I think the Wikipedia entry says it's a sci-fi drama. Right. I'm surprised no one really talks about the idea of cyberpunk with this film. Because, I mean, you've got, you've got this, like, it is future technology, but it's very retro, old-looking they're living in a crap sack world. Yeah, but I don't think it focuses on cyberpunk type ideals, though. Not the like ethos. Yeah, and the it doesn't really have the that big kind ideas, of a style. Because but... at least when I think of cyberpunk, I think of a very particular type of style. Mm-hmm. But anyway, it does have those elements. You're not wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll hit you with the synopsis. Do it. In a future world, young people are increasingly becoming addicted to an illegal and potentially deadly virtual reality game called Avalon. When Ash, a star player, hears of rumors that a more advanced level of the game exists somewhere, she considers giving up her loner ways to seek further greatness within the world of Avalon. Okay. Yeah, fairly succinct, yeah. Pretty much explains it. Sounds about right. Yeah. And the movie opens with a text... Message yes. crawl. I guess it doesn't really crawl. We, we get a little narrative exposition. Yep, and it, it talks about like what you're talking about right now about the mm-hmm. uh, we're in the near future. Yep, people are earning a living from playing a game. Yeah, they say how, how prescient. <laughs> they say they say the world's not doing so great. There's a lot of you know different struggles for for energy and economic issues yeah. and to kind of deal with the woes of the world. A lot of people have turned to these virtual reality games, of mm-hmm. which the most popular is Avalon. Which uh, we'll maybe get into more of the mechanics of what Avalon is, but up front it's basically like a MMO first person shooter kind of thing. Yeah, with a very military kind of sci-fi, very generic film. military type mm-hmm. game. Yeah, but with RPG elements mixed in. Mm, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but they say that um, players that are specific, uh, particularly well in the game can actually kind of cash out of it and make a living 
just by playing. Right. But the game is supposed to be illegal, right? There's not really much made of that in the movie it, itself. It's, it's dubious, yeah. kind of. Um, it made me think of a kind of thing where it's like, okay, you can play it, but you shouldn't be profiting off it kind of thing. Mm. Which we've seen that in our own world where people oh, have God. got into gambling upon video games. Yeah, or making a living just by playing games. Mm-hmm. You're going to get us taken off YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> YouTube makes a living off of people making a living out of playing video games. <laughs> Uh, so we get this like computer-looking screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, it shows like a bunch of tanks, and then it switches to sort of a like a real world, mm-hmm. like, like you're actually there. Um, but it's still within the game, so it's the whole you know VR type thing. Mm. Um, and it's cast in a kind of like it, it is a sepia tone, but there's almost like an orangey haze put to it. Yes, which is important because there's some distinction in the coloring throughout this film. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> I've already lost Jason. <laughs> That's okay. It's not different enough, in my opinion. Because the whole movie... The, it all looks kind of the same to me. Mm-hmm. Like, the reality of the movie or the game, it's pretty indistinguishable to me. Maybe... We'll put a pin in that. Okay. And maybe it's supposed to. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I know, I know. I was waiting for that. Um, so these tanks are, like, shooting at people, and they get blown up. I love when someone dies in the game. Yeah, there's like this digital effect, and they sort of like scatter these little bits and stuff. And it's cool because when they first like split apart, there's one part where a camera pans through, and they're like flat. And you see like the slices of them as a person. Right. And then it like just dematerializes. Yeah. It's kind of a little Matrix-y sort of camera pan. Mm. Um And we're kind of introduced to our main character, Ash. Yep, she shows up. She's wearing all black. And, uh, like, the countryside becomes a city all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. And the tanks, tanks are coming through, shooting at people. And, uh, yeah, she's she's kicking ass and she's taking names. Kicking kicking There's other players present during this. It seems to be like a boss raid or something where, like, you got to stop these tanks is the objective. Right. But there's other players, and they can freely attack one another. So if, yeah. if we're talking video game concepts, this is full-on, like, player versus player. And they talk about that some uh, a little later, which maybe we'll just mention it now, is that uh, if you die in the game, it can be very uh, taxing on the body with mm-hmm. the way this whole system works. And so there's this whole thing of like resetting and logging out before that happens if things go bad. Right. Um, but yeah, these guys are just killing people with rec- reckless abandon, but Ash kind of swoops in and starts taking them out. Mm-hmm. And we get this big helicopter comes in, like this big, huge gunship. Mm-hmm. Um. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and start bitching a little, if that's all right with you. All right, let's do it. Uh, of course, this is a lower-budget movie. You know, it, it doesn't have... The effects aren't the best. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's obviously CG and and, sure. and not the best. And it's got that whole kind of um, murky, blurry look to it, mm-hmm. the blend in. There's a lot of green screen work going on, obviously. Yeah. Um, I'm not a fan of that look, personally. Like, I find it offensive <laughs> a lot of times. I feel like you know what I'm going to say, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. Right. It's not supposed to be real. For, it's me, in the game. for me, it works because it is the game. Right. And that's what I said to myself. This mm. is the game. Fine. I, I, I can deal with that. <laughs> but then when we get to the real world, it looks pretty much the same. Now, of course, again, we're going to, you know, whenever you're, <laughs> whenever you're dealing with like a VR type yeah. thing, you're, you're always in the back of your head is, oh, are they really in a game? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, Existence came out a couple of years before this, so yep. I'm already thinking that I was going to talk about that later because that's a good companion piece to this Yeah, film. yeah. 
Um, which I will say, though, the tanks, though, are real. Which is yeah. an interesting thing we should get into. Is this little fun fact is part of the reason they made the film in Poland is because the Polish military was very generous. And when they came in and said, hey, we want to do this film, they were like, anything you want, you've got it. Take tanks, take choppers, take it all. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, hey, yeah, yeah, use it. That's awesome. <laughs> so that's that part's great. And there's a later scene with the helicopter where it is a real helicopter. Yes. And then that is, I'll, I'll give some criticisms of this film. Oh. If they had the helicopter once, I don't know why they didn't do it twice and just nix the whole CG helicopter. Right. But yeah. Is what it is. But again, I can, I can forgive it for being like in a game. You know, it doesn't need to look perfect because it's, it's a VR type game. Hmm. Um, but she gives this little voiceover telling her name's Ash and she's been playing Avalon for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And we notice that she's being watched by some guy in a black robe with a uh, broom handle Mauser. <laughs> yep. A little ominous looking, bald head. Mm-hmm. Is he a friend or a foe? We don't know. Right. She clears the stage, downs the helicopter. And kind of she kind of gets like the whole like you know mission complete thing. Logs out of the game and we're brought to the real world, which is, is sepia toned as well. Mm-hmm. I think it looks a little less orangey than the game looks. I don't know. I, again, mm-hmm. part of it could be the fact that I'm streaming it. Mm-hmm. Who knows what the source was? Mm-hmm. It didn't look different to me. Again, mm-hmm. could be the point. Um, I'll give you two facts. I watched it from the DVD, mm-hmm. and also I'm partially red colorblind. So <laughs> okay, all right. Well, so so maybe my own uh, deformity has assisted <laughs> <deformity>. the film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, we yeah. do get a cool title sequence with some good music. Oh, God. Don't want to skip that Yeah, part. so this is where uh, Kenji Kawai scored this film. I fucking love him. I got nice things to say. The music is really yeah. good. The score on this slaps. It's just so good. And that main title track is, ooh, so good. Mm-hmm. Which you can see, like, the second you hear some of his music, it's like it makes sense when you, you hear Oshi say, like, oh, I have to work with him. Yeah. I, I love to have a segment that's like a montage of scenes with just his music under it. Yeah, it's a very classical, classical-influenced orchestral score. Um. We'll pause here to so just talk about him a little bit. He is one of my favorite composers as well. Uh, he has a lot of credits. Uh, he's scored on some Common Rider series. Uh, he did the score for Sui Hark's Seven Swords. And then he also worked on Young Detective D, Rise of the Sea Dragon. Uh, he did the score for Wilson Yip's Ip Man. Ton of Oshi collaborations. And in the anime world, he's done scores for bigger things such as Ranma Half and Meizani Koku. And he's done scores for some of Hideo Nakata's films like The Ring and Ring 2. Oh, sweet. And I think Dark Water as well. Mm. Nice. Uh, some other bigger name anime shows he's worked on. Uh, he, he did a Gundam series, Mobile Suit Gundam 00, which was one of the 2000 era ones. And he's even shown up on more modern stuff like Mob Psycho 100. That's a more recent popular sort of action supernatural focused anime. So yeah, he gets around a lot. Cool. And I pulled this quote because it was this is Oshi directly talking about him, and I thought it was great. Uh, talking about Kenji Kawai and his compositions, he said, His music is responsible for 50% of all of my film's successes. I often feel like I can't do anything without him being involved. Good to give credit where credit's due. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so Ash wakes up, and she's laying in a chair. She's got this helmet on. She's kind of laying in her underwear, basically. Her underclothes. Mm-hmm. Uh, place looks pretty dingy. Yeah, ran down. Mm-hmm. A, little, a little crappy. She does look just like her character. Mm-hmm. Everyone in the movie seems to retain their physical appearance from the real world. Um, and the design of this, this chair and the headgear 
that they use to log into the game. Or should I say jack in to make Michael happy? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, the headpiece they used to jack into the game, mm-hmm. it's uh, inspired by a little nod to La Jete, which we just talked about. Oh, okay. One of his favorite films. Yeah, all right. I also got a little bit of video drum yeah. inference there. Yeah, I can, I can give you that. Yeah. Uh, so uh, there's uh, this guy on the screen. Yeah, he's one of the game masters. And he's, he's got a priest caller, right? Mm-hmm. Um... He's telling her stuff like she's only got a few more levels to go. Yeah, uh, one of the mechanics of this game is you have a class that's sort of like your skill in the game. And it ranks up in the letters and it goes all the way up to class A. Mm-hmm. And then I think there's, there's talk of like a special A that's like the, the pinnacle of the yeah. greatness in the game. Right. And, and Ash is a class A player. And she's only got a few more missions to clear to, to finally rank up to the last level. And he says stuff like, you know, she'd do better if she was with the team. Mm-hmm. But she don't want to play with no team. No, because because like an MMO game, the ideal is that you're going to party up. Uh, we learned that there are character classes. A lot of the character classes have very like RPG fantasy stuff. Uh, this is doled out later, but it just makes more sense to talk about it now. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ash is a warrior. This is a more combat-focused class. Makes sense. Uh, we get that there's a thief class, uh, a bishop class, and there's maybe one. She or mentions two. a mage. A mage, yeah. But my problem is we never see any of that. Mm-hmm. We're told it. We don't. We don't see any. We don't even see. We have a. We have a character who is supposed to be a thief, but he doesn't do anything. He does describe what he does, though. He talks about how he's mostly yeah. Just a but I mean, show and... don't tell. You know, <laughs> it's just I hear these things. and I'm like, oh, cool. We're gonna see someone like throwing fireballs and shit in a minute. She's talking mm-hmm. about mages. Never happens. You know, I. I, I that bugged me a lot. <laughs> I'll give you that. It, it is his style. His style is like tell and then tell some more. Uh, but, but yeah, okay, sure. All right. Uh, um, yeah, but she so, said she was on the best team ever. Mm-hmm, yeah, and she can't go back because, you know. Which we, we learned later is called Team Wizard. Team Wizard, yep. And they were like the greatest party in the game, but something happened and they broke up. Mm-hmm. And this is where we should maybe talk about the discrepancy with the U.S. release. Okay. I don't know if this was in there for you or not, where you streamed it. Um, so for the U.S. release, they did an English dub. I've mm-hmm. never listened to it. I don't know if I did good. watch the English dub. Oh, did you? Yeah. How was it? Not great. <laughs> uh, so for that English dub, they rewrote the script. They wanted to make it a little easier to understand. They thought it was too con- too slow at times, too confusing at times. And so they added in some extra dialogue where Ash sort of does the whole like Blade Runner narration. Right. Where she's she's talking over things as it's happening. We get some of that. There wasn't a lot. It wasn't like the original cut of Blade Runner. It no, wasn't no. Near any of- it's a few scenes at the start to just kind of yeah. orient people yeah, better. We, yeah, that wasn't mine. Um, those scenes are supposed to just be silence and atmospheric. and mm. um, So the funny thing is when they made that script, when they went to do the DVD, for the subtitles for the original Polish language version, they just slapped that script in there. So if you're watching it from the DVD source, you'll get these moments where she's just walking down a hallway and then text is popping up mm. and she's not saying anything. Okay. It's, it's very absurd. Did they... Okay, so all the actors are Polish. Mm-hmm. So it was shot... In the Polish language, is yes. that correct? So I guess for the Japanese distribution, it would have been dubbed over. With, mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. The, the version you watched, it was dubbed Japanese? It was the Polish. That's Polish, the original yeah. language version. Okay. So. All right. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, it, so it's funny. If you track down the DVD, don't be alarmed. There will just be text popping up out of nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> Which, it's funny because all the information they give you in those extra bits, you learn later. Mm-hmm. It's just for some reason they felt like you ought to have that up front, like the Team Wizard stuff and their names and yeah, all that. Right. They just didn't trust their audience probably in America. Yeah, I mean, it was fucking Miramax, so. Yeah, well. 
so she goes out into the lobby of this building, and we get the impression that this is just some sort of a central hub where right, people yeah. come to play the game. The, the assumption I got is there's all kinds of chambers with those chairs and yeah. helmets. And... It's like an internet cafe or something mm. you know, back in the day. Um, you have a little player card, which mm-hmm. she uses to kind of like read her data. and um, I think it's before she leaves the Game Master, she says, I need to be charged for ammo. Yeah, she wants to buy ammo in the game, mm-hmm. but then have credits in the real world. Yeah, yeah. she wants to cash out the rest. Again, all those micro microtransactions <laughs> and stuff that happen nowadays. Yep. God, I couldn't imagine playing Call of Duty and you have to buy all your ammo. <laughs> if EA is listening, please stop and don't do this. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> um, and we also see people like in the lobby watching this kind of blurry, like holographic imagery yeah, of like what she had just done. Yeah. yeah. Um. So she gets back home. Yeah, we get a, get a little just like. Uh, scenery atmosphere building of her on a ride back home. Mm-hmm. Uh, very somber. Things look very ran down. Yeah. Uh, she has a dog. Basset hound. Basset hound. It's adorable. And I do like the te- I do like, like you mentioned earlier, the tech is kind of retro looking, mm-hmm. which I appreciate. Yeah, because she has a little uh, personal computer and she tries to log in and check her email. And it's very like MS-DOS, like it's just text. Mm-hmm. And that could also be a product of the time. Mm-hmm. But also I think there was an intentional... Uh, method of making it look more old-fashioned and stuff. Yeah, for sure. So I think our next plot bit is that she she goes to check in at the the center because there's and she's like you know doing her usual routine. Yeah. And there's this new video that everyone's watching of a bishop class player who ran the same mission and got a faster clear time than Ash. Right. Which and intrigues her, of course. Yeah, she's obviously pissed off about this. And she wants to log back in and like push harder, and they're they're kind of dissuading her to be like, oh, you know, you know, pace yourself. Yeah. Uh, and so, just in the course of her life, she bumps into one of her former teammates. Mm-hmm. Uh, his name is Stunner, which I, I imagine was his game. Yeah, game tag. Tag. Um, and he was the thief of their team. And they're kind of catching up with one another. He kind of tries to con her into buying him some food. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and they go, well, it looks like kind of like a soup kitchen almost. Mm-hmm. It's kind of run down and, and, and yeah. dingy. Because their bowls basically just have slop yeah. in there. Which, it almost suggests like maybe that's the only food there is you can get to eat. Yeah. Anything else is probably some expensive luxury. That she makes for her dog later. Mm-hmm. Now. Which he mentions that too, isn't it? That it's like a luxury to yeah, have a Bishop, dog. Yeah, Bishop character yeah. Dude makes, that, makes that remark later. I don't know if Stunner mentions anything about a dog. I don't remember that. But also kind of shades of Blade Runner there. Mm, yeah. Uh, what exactly is a bishop class? Because I never really grokked that while watching. I think movie. it's supposed to be like a cleric or like a healer support kind of class. Okay. Okay. The only hints we get about what they can do in the game is there's a mention of him being able to make like dummy copies of like characters. Right. That show up. Okay. It's a question because I was never clear about that. Yeah. Uh, it seemed like the, the based on the names they're trying to emulate like the standard D and D adventuring right. party. So right. And I'm just disappointed because I didn't really see that. It irritates me. You wanted them casting like heal, lightning bolt, lightning well, bolt, I mean, lightning if you're, bolt. If you're talking about mages and shit, yeah, that's what I want to see. Uh, but Stunner asked if she's heard about Murphy. Yep. Who was the leader of their team. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says something about how you like went solo but never came back. Mm-hmm. He's at clinic. He's he's what they call an unreturned. Which we get that in the title card. They say that's yeah. part of the reason that it's kind of got this shady like pseudo-legal thing about it is that some people, there's a phenomenon that happens where they just become comatose. And the, what their spirit, their mind, whatever you want to call it, it never comes back to their body out of the game. 
and they're just right for all intents and purposes dead. Yeah, and they but call those the unreturned. Um, Stunner tells her that there's a hidden character in the game. Mm-hmm. A little girl with sad eyes doesn't say a word. She's called the Ghost. Mm-hmm. Uh, no one ever goes after her. Makes it back. Yep, he says that he's heard that it's a hidden NPC put in by the game masters. And that there's some quest involving her that if you solve it, it opens up a gateway to special A, that right. highest level which, of the yeah, game. Yeah, which is the end of the game, basically. Which ha- has the greatest rewards, but it, it brings about this mission that when you play it, you can't reset. Mm-hmm. So if you fail that mission, your avatar gets wiped. Yeah. And, and she goes she goes to visit Murphy. Mm-hmm. He, he's in the bed, him. all zoned out. Super comatose. And we get some sort of flashback it. to Team Wizard. They're like hunkered down. In these ruins, getting attacked by the big-ass helicopter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're on a mission, and it's gone wrong. Yeah. And there's this whole thing about they want to call reset, because if they don't, they're going to die and lose their characters. And there's a lot of tension, because some of them think they can make it, and they can clear it, and it's like a back-and-forth thing. And is it Ash? I forget who. One of them breaks and calls for the reset. They don't really show what happens here. Yeah, it, it's vague at this part. Yeah. yeah. You get the impression, though, that it's that it's Ash. Mm. That's what you think. And that kind of ruined their reputation because they failed a mission and didn't see it through to the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think on her way home, we see uh, Bishop is spying on her. Yeah, it, it's funny because he has the same, like, spy scope yeah. that you see him use in the game. Yeah, that's true. Um, but Ash is intrigued now because mm-hmm. clearly this special aid thing is real because Murphy... Has become unreturned. So we get a little bit of like this this crude internet research where she's looking like keyword terms. Yeah, yeah. And she's having to like narrow the search, narrow the search, exclude these, exclude that. But but she's searching, you know, Avalon. And one of the things that Stunner mentioned to her was this idea of the Nine Sisters, Mm. which are supposed to be like the the top game masters that designed the game. Uh, It's a lot of Arthurian legend references. Yes. Which, again, Avalon, that's supposed to be like the island where heroes go. Yeah, King Arthur went when he mm-hmm. died, right? Yeah, it's sort of sort of a uh, afterlife e Valhalla kind of mm-hmm. idea. Uh, she doesn't turn up too much. So the next time she's in at the game center, she asks the GM a little bit about it. And is sort of questioning him. And he's very cagey with her. Hmm. Um, he gives her like a little info, but it's not enough. And he kind of tells her that, you know, as the game master, he's not allowed to favor any one player. He can't say or do anything that would give someone an edge over mm-hmm. everyone else. Like a good game master. Mm-hmm. I can respect that. As <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Frequent uh, game master myself. <laughs> absolutely. Um, yeah. He tells her to stay focused and don't go chasing ghosts. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Kind of just tells her to give up on it, which only makes it more suspicious and appealing. Yeah. Um, so the next time she enters the game, she has this invitation to a meeting. She's supposed to link up with some people, and they're going to give her a lead on this ghost. Mm-hmm. But like most MMORPGs where there's player versus player action, it actually turns out to be a trap, and it's a group of griefers that are just wanting to rob her and steal her high-level expensive equipment. Yep. Uh, so she's kind of it's kind of like a little like ruiny looking area that they're in. Yeah. Um, but she manages to turn the tables on them. Pretty much dispatches all of them, right? Yeah. Yeah, but then that helicopter shows up. Mm-hmm. They're ambushed. And there's something about a time lapse. Like some sort of oh, a time yeah. lag or something. Uh, they get into the idea of lag, which of course is if you play games online, you know all about that. Um, I like how they do it visually in this, where it's like the people kind of stutter. 
yeah. for a little bit in place. And she uh, does the whole reset thing. Yeah, because there's no way out of this. Yeah, because she's about to get blown <laughs> up by some freaking <laughs> missiles. Um, but before that happens, the leader of this little like raiding party, he does reveal to her a little bit of information. Um, and he says that the only ones that know how to get to Special A are the Nine Sisters, and that those are the creators of Avalon. Mm, right. And that no one else is going to be able to help her. Nope. Um, and we learn that when you reset, it really fucks you up. Yeah, she like leans over and vomits and yeah, shit. She, she comes out and she's a wreck. Yeah. Um, I guess she jacked out too soon. Yeah, that's what happens sometimes. Yeah, yeah, watch that. Yeah, watch it when you're jacking in and jacking out. <laughs> Love you, Michael. Uh, so we get a neat scene where on the way home, she notices that people are just immobile. Like they're just standing there. Right. They're not moving. They're not interacting. Yeah. This is never really explained or acknowledged. It's just mm-hmm. just an interesting scene. Yep. And she comes back home. She starts preparing one of her meals for her dog like she always does. Yes. A very... Drawn out sequence that had me very impatient. In a very <laughs> slow but moving atmospheric moment. You no, think? no, I thought no, so. No, I don't. I wasn't moved. See, I think I've just been trained. He may. I think he's just seen a lot of this dude's movies. Yeah. Well, I found it pretty dull. It took me right yeah. out of the movie. It really did. Yeah. I'm like, okay, come on, come on. Yeah. yeah. As they but say, that's me. Come see, come saw. Right. But she turns around because she's making a big elaborate dinner for her dog. Mm. But the dog's not there. Which eats better than her. Yeah. But yeah, the dog's gone. And in that moment, too, she also hears the helicopter from the game. Right. The, the, just the sound of the chopper blade. Which I think that's why they have it show up in that ambush, too, to kind of get that in your mind. Because mm-hmm. it's a very distinct sound. And the next scene, she's at a bookstore. Mm-hmm. She's buying some books on, like, Arthurian legend. At least one of them is. Right. She's still trying to run this down. Mm-hmm. And she runs into Stunner again. Yep. And he tells her that he can help her find the ghost, but the ghost doesn't show up unless there's a bishop yep. there as well. That's the trick. It's sort of like one of those exploits in a video game where it's like, you got to be in this spot and you got to do yeah. this thing. And right. uh, what's the dumb Castlevania game where they have the convoluted thing of like, you go to the wall and you crouch down like... Was for... that Simon's Quest? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's one of those kind of deals. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so it's, you got to have a bishop player. You got to do a certain thing in a certain area. And that's the only way you can summon the ghost. Yes. And we get some annoying close-ups of him eating. Yeah. <laughs> that was another sequence that went on way too long. I'm like, what? what's the point of this? What's think- the point? Unless he's about to make a gun that shoots teeth. <laughs> I'm not interested in this scene. You know, I, I think it's just to kind of give a view of his character and who he is and his kind of mentality. And he's very like... Well, that's another know, complaint Material I focused. Um, but I will say, this is just a fun aside. Not like we haven't had enough of these, but... Um, Tiffany has a weird thing where it really gets to her if there's like <laughs> chewing sounds or right, any, any right. like focus on the mouth of people eating in a film. Right, right. And so the first time I watched this, she watched it with me, and this scene broke her. <laughs> like she, she lost her damn mind, and she's like, "I will never watch this movie with you again." <laughs> nice. <laughs> That's pretty good. Uh, okay, so. Um, but yeah, part of the thing we get is that Murphy was a bishop class. Yes. So that was, he by himself summoned the ghost, and then no one knows what happened, and that's, mm-hmm. now he's unreturned. And she says she can't do this alone, but she could probably do it with a team. Mm-hmm. So of course Stunner's on board, and wouldn't you know it, the bishop-class player that's been stalking her... Shows up at her house. Conveniently shows up. Yep. 
uh, that's where he tells her that her dog eats better than most humans he knows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's where we get that. And he flips through one of the books that she bought, and it's just empty. There's no words in it at all. It's just pages, mm-hmm. blank pages. Just another bit of uh, surreal weirdness that goes on. And he tells her that it's rumored that she was the one that panicked during the last Team Wizard game and called mm-hmm. for a reset. Yep. But he does offer to make a party with her. Mm-hmm. He says, hey, if you want to find the ghost, I'll help you find the ghost. So we cut to her back at the game center. And she even tells the receptionist that her plan is, she's like, I'm going to go into the game. We're going to find the ghost. I'm going to go to special A and I'm going to find Murphy. Yeah. And I think her intention is to bring him back if she can. Right. And the receptionist warns her, tries to dissuade her. She won't hear it. She goes on in. Game master pops up. He tries to dissuade her. They go back and forth. Mm-hmm. And let me see. I think I have... Oh, yeah, I wanted to talk about this quote. Um, I think it's when they're talking in her room, her and her and the bishop player, yeah. when they're kind of debating this whole special A thing. One of the lines he says to her I thought was compelling. It's, um, what do you think is the best? A game you think you could finish but never do, or a game that seems impossible to win but actually isn't? Hmm. Okay. Keep that in your mind as yeah. we go into, go into this last bit of the film. So yeah, she, uh, as we say, jacks in to Avalon <laughs> and links up with Bishop. We're just going to call him Bishop because yeah, we never I get his name. Bishop, yeah. Links up with Bishop. That's and, how he's credited anyway. And Stunner. And yep. part of the whole shebang to do all of this is they have to take on a very powerful boss called the Citadel. Yeah, and Bishop tells her that he is like a successor to the Nine Sisters and he's like basically one of the programmers of the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, they got they got to fight this thing called the Citadel, and it's a big like weapons platform. And like you mentioned earlier, Bishop has these other characters. Basically, he call he calls them ciphers, mm-hmm. and they're just like mindless, kind of like dummy players, basically. Yeah, right. But yeah, it's kind of like a big train looking weapons platform that comes out. And I will say this thing is CG, but it looks a little better than the helicopter. I think it's just the way. Yeah, it's set. right. And it has more of that classic kind of mecha feel to it too. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I appreciate. Yeah, but they use the uh, dummy characters as distractions, mm-hmm. so they can kind of hit the uh, the exact spots and take this thing down. Okay, I'm gonna go ahead and lodge one of my biggest complaints right now. All right, now. let's do it. Okay, um, I can take it. <laughs> <laughs> one of my issues with this movie is the whole VR game. Mm-hmm. It, it's very, to me, it feels like an afterthought. Mm-hmm. Like it's not really. Their opponents are vague, like who are they fighting, you know, what are they fighting for, it's all kind of the same, they're in these bombed out places. Mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe that's the way video games are. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's why I don't play video games. Um, but it, it, I think it would have been more interesting if we had like real enemies within the game. Like when I first saw the mm-hmm. Bishop character, I was like, oh, he's the big bad of the game. Mm-hmm. You know, he's the guy that she's going to have to fight. I'll see. There, I, there's your mistake because you still thought this would be a conventional film. Right. <laughs> um, but I still want there to be like a point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, I think we're getting to the point. But it's, it's not, the game isn't the point. The game is like the backdrop. Sure. To the point. But I'll go ahead and, and lodge another complaint I have is that sure. I don't, let's wait till the end. Okay. Let's go to the Do we end. We need a little more yeah, revelation. Okay. Yeah. So they defeat the Citadel. And when they do, Stunner notices the ghost. And it is this very haunting kind of... They give her like a blue tint to her body. Yeah. Which yeah, really she... stands out with the whole like sepia tone thing mm-hmm. going on. 
and um, she kind of can like fade and like go into the walls and stuff. And um, they tell her that she has to be shot, and you have to kill the ghost. And then when yeah, she dies, it opens the gateway to Special A. Like a stunner shoots at her, mm-hmm. but then he gets tagged by one of the uh, other players in the game or one of the uh, opponents. Mm-hmm. And before he logs out to save himself and his avatar, that's when Stunner tells her, like, hey, you have to go shoot the ghost. You gotta shoot her and then step through the gateway that she creates, yeah. So we get a little scene where she, like, follows her along the wall. Oh, but Stunner also admits he's the one that called for the reset. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it ties that up. Yeah. Which I think fits his character a good bit. Sure, I mean, a thief would do that, right? Mm. Save his skin. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. But yeah, she goes after the ghost and shoots it. And there's like these wavy, you know, ringy looking digital effects that she steps into and wakes up to a monitor saying, welcome to class real. Mm-hmm. Just not our special A we've been promised the whole film. Mm-hmm. Um, but her game booth, it's in like, it looks like her apartment, sort of. Yeah, although a bit less, it's more run down. Mm-hmm. And she's in civilian clothes, not her weird. Uh, yeah. Uh, just underwear, basically. I guess. Yeah. Chilling in, usually. Uh, the window's bricked up. She finds a gun. Just a pistol, though. None yeah, of her awesome rifle or any of her. Uh, I think it's a PPK. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bishop shows up on the monitor and tells her that there is an unreturn that she must take out, which yep. we can guess is Murphy. Yeah, he says, this is class real. The only way out is to complete the mission, and that's to defeat the unreturned that's staying here and refusing to leave. Mm-hmm. And doesn't he even tell her that if she clears this, she can become like him, become one of the right, the like elite of the the programmers, the people that run the game. Mm-hmm. He tells her that she can't kill or injure anyone else. Mm-hmm. That will Who, fail the mission. Yeah, and she only gets this pistol and a clip of ammo. Right, nothing else. And can't exit until it's completed. Yep. True test of her skill, in a sense. So, I mean, this is what she's been waiting for. So she she gears up. She puts on like it's like a. Very nice, like, evening dress yeah. sort of deal. Yeah. And really nice, iconic look, I think. And there's a poster that says Avalon, mm-hmm. and it's got a picture of her dog on it. And it's like it's at some Philharmonic recital. Yeah, it's got orchestra. It's for a, yeah, it's for a concert. So and she steps out, and it looks like that she's in our world. Yes. And every, everything looks normal. We're in full color. Yes. It's vibrant. It's a normal, everyday, modern city mm-hmm. for 2001, I suppose. And she seems somewhat... You know, off put by this. And it's much different because if there were NPC people in the game, I think maybe some of those people in the opening scene in the city when they're like running from the tanks, mm-hmm. I think those are some of those are supposed to be just NPCs in the game. They seem very like rote, like they're just doing their routine to run down the street from the tank and right. they're just there. But then these people, you know, it's like living, breathing people. They're just doing, it's not like a scripted routine that they're moving through. Right. To kind of give a little contrast to that. Mm-hmm. But so she follows that lead. She's got the poster for the concert. And so she tracks down the concert hall. Yep. And she gets there and she finds that the uh, the concert's kind of practicing, preparing for the show. Kind of going over some of the songs. And Murphy's there. Yep. And they're like, hey, you know, let's go outside. Let's, let's talk about this. Mm-hmm. And a little note I wanted to throw in here. The orchestra that's there, that is the Warsaw, War, the Warsaw. That is the Warsaw Philharmonic Orchestra, and they were some of the performers that uh, worked with Kawhi on the music. That's fun. 
Uh, so I figured they probably were like some of the ones that recorded it. Nice little seen. gig that you get to record that score and then also be in the movie. Yeah, show up in a movie. That's cool. Um, and so we get this little like final conversation between her and Murphy about everything that's happened. Um, and he reveals to her that his plan is to never leave this world. He wants to stay here forever. Mm-hmm. And I pulled this quote because I really wanted to go over this. This is like one of the big moments of the film to me anyways. So she says to him, is this what you wanted for this? You abandoned all of us to spend the rest of your life as a hollow shell, just sitting in a hospital bed, staring at nothing. And then Murphy counters to her. How can you be so sure here now? Do I look like a hollow shell? Do I reality is only what we tell ourselves it is. That's all. And I choose this one. I prefer this reality to the other. Right. So I, I would say that's kind of the thesis statement for the film, almost in a sense. Yeah, I can see that. Um, basically, he pulls a gun on her, too. Yeah. See, he's not going back. He refuses. Yes. Uh, but she shoots him. Before the shot, though, another thing he tells her, oh, yeah. when he realizes that she's determined on this, and this whole, like, which is real, he says, when you shoot me, if I just lay here and die and never vanish, then you'll realize... What I've said, this this is the real world. Right. That other place is something else. Right. That is important. Yes. So she shoots him. Yes. It's kill or be killed at this point. Mm-hmm. And he drops. Mm-hmm. And what happens, Jason? Um, he turns into one of those green spinny things. Like yeah. Like a gate or something. And, and, he, he, and he vanishes. Yep. <laughs> Which I'm pretty sure is not what happens when a person dies in the real world. Um... Yeah, I don't think so. I'm pretty sure. It <laughs> don't doesn't. know that I've ever come across that or seen you, that. You think someone would have filmed that or something by yeah, now? Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the Nash goes into the hall, and we see the ghost girl in there. Yeah, it's empty. The the orchestra's yeah. moved out. Yeah, and the ghost is on the stage. And Ash says that she believes that she controls the game, and, and the, the ghost girl just sort of like smiles at her. And as she smiles, Ash kind of raises her gun. Almost like a uncertainty was the vibe I got. Yeah. And then we smash cut to the game text, and it says, Welcome to Avalon. Yes. And that is our ominous and open-ended conclusion. Indeed. Okay. Okay. So where do we start? I think before you go we, first, I go first. we go into Who goes first? the breakdown on the... <laughs> Film and our thoughts. I, I've got a lot of background stuff I want to get to. Okay. Uh, the film had an alternate title, Gate to Avalon. Mm-hmm. I think it was probably fine just to shorten it to Avalon. Pretty yeah, distinct. I think so. Uh, I talked about that whole power trio of Oshi, Kawai, and Ito. So Ito was the writer on this. He actually wrote the script and everything. So again, this is like that power trio of the three of them all working together. Um, the film was shot in Rocklaw, Noah Huta, and uh, the Modlin Fortress and Warsaw. So I got around to a lot of places in Poland. Uh, like we said, any military vehicle or helicopter in this that was seen that wasn't a weird CG creation, mm-hmm. all of it was given by the Polish army for free for their use. Yeah, heck yeah. Very generous. Um, I think technically, officially, this is the first film to depict the idea of lag. Okay. Like the video game concept. All right. So that's, that's, that's cool. a neat little that's thing something. for it. Um, the scene of Ash in the tramway, that is a live action recreation of a scene from Jinro, the Wolf Brigade. That earlier film I mentioned, the anime mm. film that he, he planned, but then it ended up not directing. 
Um, and that scene is based on one of Oshi's own teenage experiences. He revealed in an interview. He said when he was young, sometimes he would go to the Yamanote line in Tokyo and spend entire days in a loop riding the train around and kind of just hanging out in the tramways hmm. and kind of just taking in the atmosphere of everything. That's cool. Um, already mentioned the Warsaw Philharmonic Orchestra. Also, the Tokyo Pop Orchestra performed some on the score as well, hmm. just to give them credit where credit's due. Um, the production designer for the film was Barbara Nowak, and they printed her name on the Avalon opera poster. Yeah. As a little nod to her. Cool. I guess just to really define Avalon, I did pull this out to share. Mm. So it's the legendary island from Arthurian lore. It's known as the place where King Arthur's sword Excalibur was first forged, and is later where he is taken to recover from his wounds after the Battle of Camlin. Um, so the film was produced and directed by a Japanese crew. So mm. all the crew and all the like top-level stuff was Japanese people. The other half was European or other Asian countries involved on the Polish side. All the actors are Polish. Uh, and it was shot originally intentionally in Polish language. Mm. Okay. Uh, they made a Japanese dub for the Japanese release. And the only way to get access to that currently this day is there was a DVD release in Japan. Mm. That's the only source for that. Wow. Uh, Oshi has talked about the film a little bit in interviews and stuff. Um... And it actually, this goes back to that um, Andres Bergen that I mentioned I pulled a quote from earlier. He interviewed him on this, and Oshi said, Once we had the idea for the film and knew what we were doing, the idea of shooting it in Japan became impossible. I never considered the idea of using a Japanese cast. I always knew I wanted to shoot it in the UK or Ireland or somewhere similar. Once we did some location scouting in Poland and saw the towns and the sceneries, I knew it matched exactly my image to take the story that had been made and realize it into film. And then, of course, he frequently mentioned that one of the big advantages of shooting there was that the Polish armed forces were super generous, loaning them tanks, guns, anything they wanted, eagerly and willingly, charging them no fees for it. Nice. Free production value right there. Yep. We already talked about the Wayward Miramax release. <laughs> if you wanted a good release of this film, it is, it is out there, not on Blu-ray, sadly. Um, but there was a good DVD release in the UK from a company called Blue Light. And that has the actual the original footage with the Polish language and a direct translation of the script without the weird Miramax rewrites yeah. and extra dialogue added. Okay. Uh, in Europe, the film got screened out of competition at uh, Cannes in 2001. And then it also apparently had a good reception there, they say. Uh, can't verify or deny yeah. that. Uh, also, it won awards at some other European festivals. In Spain, it got Best Cinematography at the Catalan International Film Festival. And in the United Kingdom, it won Best Film at the Sci-Fi London uh, Awards in 2002. Some accolades. And then, last little thing to finish off of related bits. Uh, this film has a pseudo-sequel. I was going to ask you about that. Assault Girls. Yes, Assault Girls, made in 2009. Written and directed by Oshi. It's a standalone sequel set in the same sort of fictional universe of Avalon. It's supposed to be further in the future, and it's supposed to be like a new iteration of the game. Mm -hmm. um, it's very different. It's almost nothing like... I'll say this. Assault Girls is the movie that you want, Jason. The whole... From the trailer, it looks like it. <laughs> the whole film is only in the game. We never see any of their real life. Yeah. And it's just three badass 
lady characters in the game. Right. And what it's evolved into is almost like this deserty wasteland. And the big theme of the game is that you're hunting these giant like sandworms. Yeah. Okay. And it's almost like um, for our listeners that are versed in video games, like a monster hunter scenario where it's there's no like little chaff enemies. It's all just big, huge, giant boss mm. monsters that you have to struggle to beat. Cool. Um, and it's kind of this story of three badass solo players that discover a boss that's so huge and so impossible, they have to reluctantly team up together to try to bring it down. And there's a lot of tension of double crossing in the mix. Mm. Okay. It's fun. It's just it's just a fun. Yeah, it looks like only, it's only an hour long, so yeah. it looks like it's just sort of a yeah. And the last little thing I wanted to mention, and I don't know how connected this really is, but oh, she made another live action film in 2014, and it was an American co-production called Garm Wars: The Last Druid. Now I don't know if this is actually connected mm-hmm. to Avalon and Assault Girls, but I'm going to say this: if you watch it, it has the same vibe. Okay. The same tone, the same feeling of, like, it's a virtual world. And it's this weird, like, as presented, you're only in the world. So you don't know if it's a game that you're in or it's just a really, like, fantastical world. But it kind of feels like if you took Avalon and Assault Girls and blended them, it has that same vibe. It's an interesting movie. It's a compelling movie. It kind of splits the difference between the two. It's got more of the action of Assault Girls. Mm-hmm. But then at the end, it goes more philosophical, like Avalon. Um, it actually stars Lance Henriksen as one of the leads. I just saw that. That's cool. Um, it got really panned. No, it well, didn't do well. Yeah. Um, and I think for America, they even just dumped it to DVD. They didn't even give it a Blu-ray. Sure. Despite being shot on high def. But uh, if you dug this film at all, it's maybe worth a little companion mm-hmm. add-in to go check out. Okay. Nice. That's all the fun stuff I have on this one. Okay. I, I didn't find a lot on it. <laughs> There's not a lot of... Yeah. Tidbits out there. So. Um, so. Okay. Well, you brought this movie. So you, you like this movie. I love this film. I've made no hints to otherwise. <laughs> right. You wouldn't have brought it if you didn't like it. <laughs> if you didn't think there was something good about this movie. Something compelling worth talking so about. So what is it you like about this movie, Dustin? I love this film from start to finish. Just every moment of it. I love the atmosphere. Okay. I love. It's got big vibes. Big mood energy, I think. Um. And so I want to talk about this. Now's the time to talk about this. I think that as a f- director, Oshi can be a little daunting for people, especially if you're not like on his wavelength. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not to say like, oh, you don't get it. You're dumb or something. That's right. just, he's kind of a weird guy, like an eccentric. He's like a, he's like a David Lynch, right? He's on this weird wavelength that's out there. And maybe you can appreciate what he, I'm not saying he's similar. I'm <laughs> okay. saying He sees me rolling my eyes. In that same way of, <laughs> he's got this thing going on and he's doing he, it. He has his own vision. Yeah. Yes. I'll grant you that. And you can either like vibe to that or if, if not, it's probably going to rub you the wrong way. Yeah. And I think for a lot of people, to be fair, it ends up rubbing them the wrong way. And I think, I think the main thing is all his works are very heady, very cerebral, and they're all undercut by this idea that you could need a slow meditative pace to kind of just soak everything in and just feel it and just be it. And, and when I read the thing about him, like just chilling in the train stations mm-hmm. and just like vibing, I, I, I kind of got it. Like for a lot of people that would be like so boring and just right. the worst thing you could ever do. Yeah. But, but to him, there was something like compelling about that mm-hmm. enough that he wants to share it in a film. Um, so that's one thing. Mm-hmm. So, but the other thing too, is I think that no one really knows how to market his movies. And I'm going to break this down for you. So most Oshi films that are this kind of cerebral style, none of their trailers sell you on what the film's going to be. Okay. Um, 
and almost always you're going to get this, if you watch the trailer and you just say, I've only seen the trailer, here's what this is, you're going to think it's some kind of wild, like really over-the-top sci-fi action romp with these big action set-piece moments. And yeah, I mean, that's how most studios want to sell every movie mm-hmm. because they don't oh. think that cerebral films will sell to an audience. <laughs> and, and in the reality, if you're coming at it from Oshi's perspective, that's like the flavor you throw in the mix but it's just window dressing. That's not like to him. Yeah. That's not what's important. Right. And there's like a, there's like a disconnect there. And, and the worst version of this, I think is with his film stray dog. So that whole movie is like this slow, very somber travel log, right? I'm not going to get into the whole plot and explain it, but it's, there's this guy and he, he's looking for another person in the past that he was very close with and he can't find him. And he's on a journey to track him down. And the majority of the film is just like him bouncing around city to city, Long, slow shots of driving in cars with music slightly under the tracks, no dialogue. That's like 90% of the film. At the very end of the movie, it's set in that Kerberos Panzerkopf setting that he's made several films and uh, anime for. Very end of the film, he gets one of those protect gears, the awesome like black armor, very like Nazi, mm-hmm. you know, World War II-ish looking like super soldier armor. Right. Puts that on goes on this rampage through an abandoned hotel, mowing people down with a giant assault rifle in this huge, like, big final showdown to the death. Okay. When you see the trailer for this film, it is just that final scene, and that's all you get. And the only impression you have is, like, dude, this is going to be some crazy... balls of the wall. Like, Rambo level, like, balls to the wall. And that's maybe 10 minutes of the movie. Okay. And and the rest of it is, like, a guy wandering... That's just dishonest. ...with no direction. So you're saying they treat his movies like, uh, let's say... The Kangaroo Jack trailer, where there isn't actually a talking, rapping kangaroo throughout the whole movie. That was just one little part that they decided to latch onto for the trailer. But if you only see the trailer, (laughs) that's your perception of, like, this is the movie. This this is the whole movie. I just want you to write Kangaroo Jack down in the show notes. (laughs) Hey, it's in there now, so... So, yeah, I think think that there's... the, The studios don't know what to do with his films, and then... That sets up unrealistic expectations of where he's going. Mm-hmm. And so that's already a barrier you have to jump over. And then if you jump over that barrier, sure. you now have another barrier that is his interesting to me, but maybe not to everyone out there. Let's get surreal and metaphysical. And right. what does all this mean? Right. So I wanted to share that. Um, obviously a very big theme in this film. And it's one that I love is this whole question of like, what is reality? Um, and so to, you know, chart this out in Avalon in the game, it's in the sepia tone that to me seems to have an orangey haze. Maybe it doesn't, maybe I'm insane and I'm trying to validate it. Um, (laughs) the real world is also shot in this sort of normal sepia tone. And I, to me, I thought the contrast was like the real world seemed to be drabber than the Avalon world. I just didn't get that. It looked pretty much the same Um, to me. And then of course the, the clincher to that is at the end we get to class real and that's in vibrant full color. Yeah. Just like our real world. Right. Uh, and then that brings us to that final conversation with Murphy where, you know, he's questioning, like, which world is real? Uh, is, it, is it that one or this one? Is the world we thought we were in, is that ever even anything? Or is that just some other virtual world that we've been locked into the whole time? Right. Um, and I like that question. And I like that even though Murphy doesn't really have proof, he's kind of made his own decision hmm. and, like, committed to that. And the film doesn't really give you a clear answer like Murphy does like glitch out of the game once he's killed so seemingly they're still in the game Mm -hmm. maybe but it's never never conclusive like you know Bishop doesn't come back out and is like congratulations yeah you're now one of us yeah 
let us take you to the nice, not shitty part of the world yeah, where yeah. we're all hiding and blah, blah, blah. Um, so, yeah, it kind of leaves you with that question, like, which world is real? Is it Avalon? Is it the sepia-toned shit world that she's stuck in where nothing's great and they're all eating slop? Is it class real? Um, and I think a bigger thing is, too, is it like, is does it really matter? Mm-hmm. Which one is the real world? As far as like what matters to you, the person that's there in that moment. Um, I think I've said this on every episode we've done in this block, but my favorite kind of science fiction is the kind where they have this big question. They're really like swinging to ask you something. And I think Avalon kind of pushes one of those, you know, big buttons of like sci-fi questioning is like, as technology continues to advance, that's something that we're going to have to contend with. Like, I mean, that, comes up all the time especially in the wake of the matrix the idea like oh we might be in a simulation if right. if we ever reach the point where we could make a simulation that was real enough that would then mean that potentially we could already have been in the simulation yeah. that how would you know the difference how would you ever know the difference um and i love that idea and i love that concept and i love to wrestle with it i don't know what i think about that 100 percent, and i don't know if i want to answer and if we if we go the whole way with that it might be scary to even chart that out to mm-hmm. a conclusion, but right. I like to wrestle with the thought and the idea. And you mentioned it early on, but I want to highlight it again. Uh, David Cronenberg's Existence also touches on a lot of these topics and themes, and it's a great film in its own right. Maybe kind of underrated in his filmography. I think so. I say. Big time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I just love the, the big idea that this film's asking, and I like to wrestle with it and tackle with it and vibe out to the weird world that we're given in the way that Oshi always loves to do. And there's also a bit of a, like a personal love to this. Cause watching this film, it always makes me think about like when I got into playing MMORPGs and there was one in particular, I really loved called Ragnarok online, which it, it's funny because it's not very immersive. Like it's, it's 2d like anime art and like kind of janky polygon 3d world. Mm-hmm. So it's never, you could never look at it and be like, yes, this is a world that I'm in. Right. Uh, but I just remember like I sank so much time into that game and like played it and, there were like complete friends and groups of friends and friend circles that I had that I only only existed to me in that game and that I knew through that game. Yeah. And even though we were all over the world, like we met in that place mm-hmm. and it was like this space that was like somehow significant to us. Right. Even though it is this virtual world. Um, and I think there's something like interesting and like compelling about that just as a thought and an idea. So I don't know. Okay. All right. Um, now air your grievances, my friend. <laughs> yeah, I was pretty underwhelmed, honestly. Mm. And, you know, I, I'm no stranger to the heady, you know, concepts, mm. science fiction concepts and, and, and slow moving, thought provoking movies. But I mean, everybody gets something different out of a movie, but I just, I did not get anything from this movie. Mm. You know, I, I wasn't engaged with the characters. I, I didn't care about the characters. They were all pretty flat. Uh, pretty much ciphers themselves, I thought. Um, oh, and you know, maybe that's the point, but it still bored me. And I, and I, I, I the point. it could be the point, <laughs> but I, I need to care about a character a little bit, you know. And I didn't give a shit about any of these people. <laughs> nothing. I cared nothing about uh, any of them. Uh, real quick, because I realized we forgot to do this. I do want to run down some of the cast. Okay. I, as you think, most of them gave, you know, at least commendable performances. Malgrazada Formeniak. Plays Ash. She actually has a lot of other film roles. A lot of them were Polish, so I wasn't too familiar with them, but I, I think she's really compelling as the lead. 
I think she's boring. Oh, I think she's just monotonous. She has basically the same facial expression the entire time. Again, maybe the point, but also, to me, dull. See, I think that's another Oshi staple, because look at uh, Major Kusanagi and Ghost in the Shell. It's I didn't like Ghost in the Shell. <laughs> <laughs> uh, some of the other ones that are notable, we've got um, Jersey uh, Gudeko as Murphy, Darius Biskupski as Bishop, and um, Bartomiej Swiderski as Stunner. I think those are kind of maybe their central key people we yeah. should at least give a little love to. Sure. Please continue. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I didn't really care about the characters, so I don't really care what happens to any of them. Um, the The game world was nebulous at best. Mm-hmm. And, and, again, maybe that's not the point. But when you're dealing with... A, when you have a movie and your movie is about this, you know, VR game, mm-hmm. you got to give me something. You See, know, like... I kind of wonder with that part, if it's your experience in gaming maybe colored the way you saw it. Because some of the things, like, we see where she scans her card and her, like, status menu pops up. And we see her sure. name, her class, her level. She has, like, it says, like, strength and there's some number. Agility, there's some number. Yes. So it's like, I saw that and like I just got it. Like, okay. Right. Yeah, I get, I get that. Sure. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't really play games, but I'm, I'm familiar enough with the tropes. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, like, just the games themselves... And, and, and the VR was dull. Because all she's basically doing is sitting there shooting her gun. Mm-hmm. And it's just dull. You never played Call of Duty, my friend. See? Maybe that's why <laughs> I'm not a gamer. That's literally hours of running through the same maps, shooting guns. See, that is so fucking boring. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I just wish that in the movie should be more entertaining, I think. You know, because I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, why does anybody even want to play this? You know, it's kind of boring. Because you can make real money. <laughs> I mean, I In guess a crap sack so. world where there's no jobs. I guess so. Um, the way it looks irritates me. I don't like the way it looks. Um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> I really don't. I, just, I think it looks like shit. And, and that might be intentional. I think a lot of it's budgetary limitations. Um, sure. But it just... Mm, it is very visually unappealing to me. And again, maybe it's supposed to be, especially mm-hmm. in the quote-unquote real-world scenes. Right. Um, but it looks the same way in the game sequences, too. <laughs> so I don't really see the escapism factor because uh-huh. you're going to a place that looks just as horrible. Um, you're making that money. I guess. I suppose so. Uh, but, and I think that's supposed to make us have that question of like, they both seem so same. So it's like, what's... Which is real. It, it, that could be. I mean, maybe. But I... And then that's what makes the, the twist of class real so interesting is that it, it, it seems realer than real. Right. In a sense. And I, I get the whole questioning, what is reality? You know, is this the game? Is there more to this? But uh, there's just so many movies. There's movies that did it better before this. Mm-hmm. You've you got The Matrix. Right? Right. You've got Existence. Um. I mean, God, even Tron did it like 20 years before, basically. You know, <laughs> with a, with a... You know, virtual reality, you're existing inside a game. Is that real? You know? Um, to me, it didn't bring anything new to the table. Mm-hmm. And it really wasn't made in an entertaining way. I was pretty bored throughout the whole movie. I have to mm-hmm. admit. I really was. I think we just need to get you really high. Like, <laughs> just go back through this again. I don't know. I don't think it would help. I don't think it would help. Um yeah, I don't, I don't. I don't want to shit all over it because I know you like it know. a lot, and there's people out there that like it and cool. The whole foundation of our show is honesty, so yeah, right. But it's regardless just, of what you think, I respect it. I appreciate that. But yeah, I mean, I did get halfway through it. If I wasn't watching it for the pod, I wouldn't have finished it. Oh wow! 
Yeah. Damn. <laughs> so you're telling me that you would finish Skinamarink, but you wouldn't finish Apple. I finished Skinamarink because I was with you in the theater. And I'm like, I paid like 12 yeah. bucks for this. To be fair, you slept through like half of it. So. <laughs> I don't think I missed much. <laughs> you did not. <laughs> oh, God, this movie's still on. Oh, it is truly a nightmare. I glanced over and saw you kind of nodding. And I was like, should I wake him up? And I was like, no, he's in a better place. <laughs> At least one of us should be in a better place. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, fuck that movie. Um, yeah, this just didn't work for me. It just okay. didn't work for me. And I think also another, another issue may be the fact that it... Because you've got the Japanese cast and crew and writers. You've mm-hmm. got the Polish... I'm sure there was like some cultural differences and some language differences. Mm-hmm. But it just comes across as being very boring to me. I will say that is one thing. If this could ever get like a Blu-ray or like a boutique-style release... I would love some special features where they interviewed the cast and the crew. Yeah, I mean, that could be And maybe just about the production of all. Yeah, the production itself could be more interesting than the movie was to me. Um, yeah, I just, it just didn't work for me, man. Okay, well, I forgot to give my score, so I'll give mine and then oh, yeah, yeah, give yeah, yours. Yeah. Um, right. I am five stars all the way, hard five. Really? God, it is so weird how we just Slam that pedal and won't let up. Wow. It, it, it's funny, the things we link up on perfectly and then the things we don't. Yeah, weird. So the more the more interesting thing is where did you fall? Mm. Please share with us for the class. I, I don't want to be totally dismissive of this movie because there is things I like. Mm-hmm. Like I really do like the score. Uh, the basic concept is cool. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Kenji Kawai, man, he fucking kills it on everything he does. Yeah. Uh, but uh, oof. Oh, man. Lay it down. It might be on Letterboxd. I just haven't looked yet. I, I realized I said I wouldn't have finished it. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't think about that until I said it. Mm. But it's true. I probably I wouldn't have finished it. That does not a good rating <laughs> indicate. No, it does not. Um, Dude, I got to get it one star. Okay. So one, one star for Kenji Kawai. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I have to go there. Okay. Wait. Is that our first one? No. I'm pretty sure I gave Muck like one star. Maybe, yeah. Okay. But. I think I one starred something, but I don't know. Yeah. At least Muck was more entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, as we talked about this film and I was going through the motions of it with you, mm-hmm. I kind of forgot that Return of the Living Dead was getting a new film. <laughs> and now it's all come full circle. Yep. And it's coming back. Jason, which world is real? I want to live in that other world. The, the world where there's not a new Return of the Living Dead. The world where uh, sequels to Return of the Living Dead were made by Dan O'Bannon and, and yep. kept going. Yeah. Me too, man. Me too. So there you go. That's Avalon. Uh, clearly, we have very divisive opinions on this one. Yeah, about, this is, about this as far is probably as the go. most divisive that we've uh, ever... Would love to have had Michael's input. I don't know yeah, where he would he'd fall. Yeah, he'd be at two and a half. He'd yeah. be right there the <laughs> um, So I say, yeah, this is one, like, if it intrigued you at all... I think it's at least worth the try. Now, maybe you'll be like Jason, you just need to duck out of it. That's mm-hmm. okay. I think that's fine. There's plenty of directors that I've seen some of their stuff, and I'm like, no, they're not for me. Uh, Wes Anderson. I know he's big. I know he's all no. his films are in the Criterion Collection. He's huge. That's cool, and that's fine, but he is not for me he's not in for the me least. Either. And I've watched yeah. three of his films. And I, and I just can't do them. Yeah, no. Don't, don't enjoy them. Don't like them. If you dig it, fine, cool, yeah. awesome. More power to you. Not for me. Now, for me, Oshi, he, he's like one of the, the greats, man. Like, I just, if he wow. does anything, I'm there for it front row. Okay. But I, I know he's polarizing, so that's that's just how it is. Okay. But, right. but at least through this podcast, you've been given the opportunity to go have a sampling of it, perhaps. 
This was on what Paramount Plus for uh, streaming. It was supposed to be, but I couldn't find it on there. Weird. They may have just taken it off, even though Just Watch says it was on there. So I, I had to wind up renting it from Prime. Hmm. I think where this is kind of in a gray area too. There are some cuts of it on YouTube. You can run down if you want to go that yeah, way. Yeah, I'm so. Those are always questionable. Yeah, I don't trust YouTube very much when it comes to that. And the DVD, I don't think it's super. It's able to print, but I don't think it's like hundred dollars a disc yet. No, so. it's probably the sort of thing you can find at a half price books for five mm-hmm. bucks. Yeah, I remember it being all over the video shows back in the day, though. Like when I worked at the warehouse. Yeah, <laughs> I remember. I remember the cover of this movie. Yeah, it's, it's definitely like you won't forget the cover at yeah. least when you see it. So that brings us to the end of this block. We're going to go into overtime because as we were running our list of uh, movie suggestions, we noticed we had some sci-fi in the mix. And we yeah. Thought, let's keep the sci-fi train rolling. Yeah, let's smoke this for all it's worth. So, for next time, we are going to be talking about Open Your Eyes, directed by Alejandro Aminabar. Now, you may know this for the American remake, Vanilla Sky, starring motherfucking Tom Cruise. <laughs> we need to bring Michael back in. <laughs> I mean, I don't think any of us here really... No, I, I'm, I'm always bashing Tom Cruise. There's a, hand, there's a like handful him. of films I think are good, but I think they're good because despite him. <laughs> yeah. Like Eyes Wide Shut and... Right. Yeah. Eyes, Eyes, Wide, Eyes Shut. Wide Shut is the one I always <laughs> say that he's, he, he's good in because he's not acting. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he's playing an arrogant, pretentious uh, I won't say too much about this. I've seen Vanilla Sky. I don't know... What you think of it? I, I tried watching when it first came out, and I made it halfway through and stopped watching. Um, there's maybe some neat production stuff we can get to in comparisons because I know uh, was it Penelope Cruz plays the leading lady? Yeah, she's in, in both, both versions. Yeah. So that's we, we can see, see the, the Vanessa Sky also has Cameron Diaz, who I also just never liked for some reason. I've, I've just <laughs> you know how there's just certain actors mm-hmm. who just don't like. Mm-hmm. There's no sometimes there's no rationale. You don't know right. why. Mm-hmm. Sure, she's one of them. I'm sure she's perfectly pleasant. But I just dig her in the mask. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> yes, but I'll, I'll drop you the synopsis on this just to set it up. Uh, a very it. handsome man finds the love of his life, but he suffers an accident and needs to have his face rebuilt by surgery after it is severely disfigured. Mm. Doesn't sound so science fiction. And yet, it is. All right. We'll so find we, out why. We'll explore why and get into that and... Do all the other fun stuff next time. I hope there's lasers and robots. <laughs> well, they can't all be... Uh, what's the one we watched the other night with Adam? Was it Future Kick or... Yeah, Future Kick. Yeah. Yeah, Future Kick. <laughs> that was fun. Go check out some motherfucking... Except for the fucking ending. <laughs> Fuck you, movie. <laughs> now, that is a film, like, cinematic thing we can both agree that we mm-hmm. utterly dislike is that it was all a dream thing. Oh, you spoiled Future Kick for everyone. Oh, no. <laughs> Don't don't rush him by Ooh, another VR movie it, yeah. where yeah, it, yeah, yeah. the reality and and you know the game got mixed up. True. Ah, we should have mentioned that mid episode. Oh well, whatever. Hey, <laughs> I like Future Kick more now. Like <laughs> <laughs> uh, you want a little genre exposure extra credit? Go look up Future Kick. Yeah, it's, it's a fun time. All that being said, thanks for sticking with us on this one. It was a little crazy because I was feeling kind of ranty and. <laughs> in both a positive and negative way. Um, keep doing all the stuff that you do that's cool. Let us know what you've been watching, yeah. things that you enjoy. Put Send stuff on our radar. Send us more suggestions. We're starting to get some varied options in our suggestion list, which is fun. We've got a lot of disturbing films on our suggested list. 
Thank, but, thank you for that, Elena. Yeah, that I do want to get to soon. So and we shall. We'll circle back to that soon. Most definitely. Otherwise, you can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Instagram. Uh, Threads is a thing now, and I don't know how I feel about that or that I want to fool with another one. So uh, Fuck all social media, in my opinion. Um, if you want us on there, let me know, and maybe I'll care enough then. But if I'm left to my own devices... Eh, yeah. yeah. Um, otherwise, you know, hey... If you never left us a review on your platform of choice, why don't you do that? It helps us out, helps us reach other people, get it does. all the nice algorithm things I don't care about. And I'm glad we're not just a YouTube show, so I don't have to say, smash that like button and ring the bell. You can say it. It's applicable. I literally just said it. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, um, you've been listening to Genre Exposure. All right. Bye, everybody. Take listening to the prescribed films podcast network home to hundreds of hours of free podcast entertainment the shows on this network all have a common goal providing you with the best discussions about movies and other forms of entertainment media the pfpn hopes to fill your ear holes with audio joy visit our website with links to all the other amazing shows at www.thepfpn.com thanks for listening